Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Suzanne Lynch. Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. And this week on EU Confidential, the EU took a big step this week to ramp up its collective defence capabilities. We'll explain what the EU is doing and how it aims to help Ukraine's war efforts. Also on Ukraine, we'll hear from the former commanding general of the US Army in Europe. He shares his expert analysis of why Crimea is crucial to Ukraine's ultimate victory and explains why it's harder than it seems for EU countries to provide Ukraine with military equipment. But first, Netflix's new series, The Diplomat, has hit our screens and the reviews are in. We'll reveal how it's going down with diplomats in Brussels and how it stacks up against their own experience. And as Georgia Maloney hits the six-month mark as Italy's Prime Minister, our podcast panel will bring you inside her current battle with Brussels. And so let's welcome our senior EU reporter, Jacopo Baragazzi, and Nick Vinokur, Politico's editor-at-large. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks, Suzanne. Great to be here. Jacopo, we'll begin with yourself. Now, this week, you, myself, and our colleague Paola Tama have been writing about the government of Georgia Maloney and where things stand in terms of her standing in Brussels, six months on from her taking up power in Rome. Looking back on this podcast six, eight months ago, there was a lot of talk about the emergence of a party with fascist roots bursting onto the EU political stage after winning those elections last autumn. And there was a sense of kind of quiet dread here in Brussels about what Maloney would bring. But it hasn't really seemed to have worked out that way. At least when she's in Brussels publicly, from what we've seen at EU summits, she's pretty quiet and kind of has been staying within her lane to an extent. Yes, there were uh, expectations that Meloni would have been uh, the open a big conflict with the EU and the markets, but uh, at the end uh, she proved to be much more pragmatic mm. than expected mm. by many. Italian analysts say that often the problem with Meloni is that uh, she's not a fascist, but neither an anti-fascist. Here in town, uh, recently I was with a senior diplomat who told me uh, we were very afraid of having a huge ideological battle uh, with uh, Rome, but at the end uh, she's just very conservative. Okay, but there's plenty of conservatives in Europe. Mm. So the problem doesn't seem to be at EU level the ideology. The problem seems to be much more linked to the capacity of Rome to deliver 
on the spending the money for the recovery fund. So this is the issue really that has dominated the relationship between the EU and Rome over the last six months or so. And that's the issue of cash. Italy was allocated the biggest proportion, by far the biggest proportion, of the EU's bumper post-COVID recovery fund. But it has to fulfil certain criteria in order to get that money. What's been happening? Bring us up to speed on that. So since uh, before being elected, Meloni uh, said openly that she wanted to review the agreement on the recovery fund. And uh, one of the problems, is actually a paradox, is that it's too much money. And uh, too much money for the capacity of uh, the Italian government to spend it and to spend it quickly because this money has to be spent by 2026. And it's 190 billion euro over that huge amount of money. It's a huge amount of money. But even at the Commission, they say that uh, this problem would have happened with uh, any kind of Italian government. Mm. But at stake, there is something that goes well beyond Italy. Because uh, if uh, Italy won't manage to spend this money and to spend it properly, this could uh, uh, jeopardize further calls for uh, EU debt. Because uh, the reaction to the COVID pandemic was uh, to have this debt at the EU level to be spent to help uh, countries recovering from the impact of the pandemic. So it seems that uh, Italy is the largest recipient of all this money. If then Italy won't manage to spend it or will spend it badly, of course, this would be an argument for all the countries that have always been reluctant for the EU to issue debt. So this was, in effect, a test case for the EU's, in many ways, revolutionary idea of issuing collective debt that they decided to do in the wake of the pandemic. That if this failed, the EU's policy on this is also on the line because, as you explained there, um, it's going to put off those countries, those I-told-you-so countries who warned against issuing collective debt. I mean, some of the details are fascinating here. The Maloney government wanted to use some of the money for a sports stadium to rehabilitate Florence's 98-year-old arena and build a new one near Venice. But the Commission said no to that, for example. Those uh, projects have been there even before Meloni came into office. Mm. Here, one of the issues is that uh, when then she got into office, uh, she changed the governance of the plan. Mm. So meaning that before it was the Treasury that was in charge of spending this money. As now, all the powers have been taken away from the Treasury to spend this money and then been put at Palazzo Chigi, which is uh, the equivalent, the Italian equivalent of the Elysee. But uh, at the same time, uh, also the Commission, they explained that Palazzo Chigi is not actually exactly like the Elysee. So it doesn't have the same kind of structures that uh, there is, for example, in the French capital, in the office of the French president. Mm. I mean, it's important for us to say, of course, that Maloney's right-wing conservative government is pushing through uh, measures that have shocked a lot of people on limiting same-sex parental rights, for example, one of her close political allies, in fact, her brother-in-law, seemed to echo white supremacist language when he spoke of ethnic replacement. And this is the kind of language that people were so worried about when Maloney uh, came into power. It's just that they're not really coming into the EU remit. These are national ideological issues that she is continuing with, as promised in Italy. It just is not really coming across the EU's desk. Although there is one other issue that's very EU central, and that's migration. What's she been saying about the issue of migration, which, of course, is such a central issue in Italy? 
Two things. First of all, uh, you mentioned the culture wars that uh, Meloni's people, not Meloni directly, but people around Meloni. And here it seems uh, that uh, these people around Meloni are doing that exactly because of the fact that uh, in her relationship with the EU, she's so pragmatic uh, that uh, the right-wing voters were expecting a little bit more conflictual relationship. Mm-hmm. But so, because of the fact that she's so pragmatic in the relationship with the EU and the markets, uh, then she is giving her voters this kind of cultural clashes, this kind of cultural wars at local level. As of migration, uh, there was a, a right-wing historian recently who explained that this is possibly the biggest betrayal she has done of her voters. Because uh, before being elected, she was talking about naval blockade. But as soon as she arrived into power, she has completely dropped this idea. And she ended up negotiating with third countries and trying to reduce the protection of the migrants. So doing things that are very right-wing, of course, but at the same time is not anymore the naval blockade. And these uh, kind of very right-wing policies on migration are taking place in a moment where there is a shift towards the right over migration across all of Europe. And so from this point of view on migration, she is following a very right-wing agenda, but in a moment where there is a more right-wing approach. So in a sense, by a quirk of timing, she was quote-unquote lucky that when she came with her views on migration or her right-wing views, she found a more receptive audience around the EU table than she might have, say, under Merkel, you know, five, six years ago, for example. Jacobo, thanks so much for that update. Ambassador Catherine Weiler, Prime Minister Nicol Trowbridge. Welcome. Sir, it's an honour to meet you. Ah, honour to be met. We're now joined by Nick Vinokur. This week in Playbook, you were writing about the cultural hit that has reached our screens, and that's the Netflix series, The Diplomat. Lots of us, including myself, have been watching it over the last few weeks. It gives a short summary. I mean, what's the premise of the programme? So it's about the main character, Kate Weiler, who is uh, posted, I believe, to some Middle Eastern country, and then overnight is appointed U.S. ambassador to London, where she ends up in the middle of a diplomatic crisis about a bombing, I believe, of a vessel somewhere in the Middle East, and shenanigans and intrigue ensues from there. Yeah, don't no spoiler alerts. I'm trying not to. Yeah, I've only watched the first couple of episodes, but I mean, we've got this, you know, very compelling uh, protagonist. Her husband, in a narrative twist. Uh, is also a, a retired diplomat, a retired ambassador, and it, it's charting that relationship between the two. So what's your take on it? Is it good, bad? It's certainly very watchable. And the interesting thing, I was reaching out to some people about the show and whether or not they liked it, they all seem to be sort of binge watching it and having consumed the whole season. And, you know, that sort of says, well, on the merits of the show, it's doing pretty well. There's a question of, you know, how real is it? How realistic is it? That's a whole other debate. Yeah. So what have they been saying to you, Nick, about their views on the uh, on the series? They seem fairly charitable. I think the American diplomats was a big piece in foreign policy where the U.S. sort of State Department was cheering for the show and saying, finally, something about us. And they were very impressed by the fact that they'd gotten the furniture right. There's one company that provides all the furniture and all the 
uh, residences. So they were very happy about that. And the U.S. Embassy in London has done a whole kind of fact-checking thing. So they're really running with this sort of moment for diplomacy in entertainment. But the Europeans have a kind of different view. Some of the feedback I got was that the show is a little too hyped up, a little too Hollywood for their taste. I think the Europeans would prefer something kind of more slow burn. Uh, They mentioned Borgen uh, several times as sort of more the European speed. One former very high-ranking diplomat said it was cringe, and uh, but he was also binge-watching the show. So I thought, well, it can't be that cringe if you're if you're watching through it. I see another diplomat told you that the problem with it is that actual diplomats' jobs don't make riveting TV. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why that diplomat's not writing TV. <laughs> um, but you know, a big thing that came up was the hierarchical aspect, the fact that this ambassador can just walk into the office of the British foreign minister people sort of wagged their finger and said, no, 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 that's not how it works. You have all kinds of different hoops to jump through and protocol and things like that that is not represented in the show and how she sort of seems to jump from her rank to other ranks and communicate directly with people. They said real diplomacy is much more stage managed and process oriented than that. And of course, that is not terribly entertaining. But by and large, I think the feedback has been, it's great that there's a show. And there was a little bit of a sense of, can we have something about us? Can we talk about the EU and what we do here. And people said, you know, why don't we do a show about um, the council? Or I, I said, you know, maybe co-repper, but that that was uh, <laughs> could be a stretch. <laughs> we'll be coming back to that word co-repair actually later in the program, decoding uh, what that means. Jacobo, Brussels is a city that is full of diplomats, as we've described on this podcast before. And you speak to a lot of them in the course of your work. What are you hearing from them? No, this thing of the perks uh, is something that, uh, I mean, many countries also because of the financial crisis uh, have actually reduced uh, the perks for the diplomats. And it's a job where uh, you have, uh, of course, a very privileged treatment if you are an ambassador. Then you have a house, you have a chauffeur driven car and so on. And, uh, but not so much in many other cases. And so there is a pretty strong difference when you really have the top job and uh, when you are doing the other kind of jobs. And we do know that some EU ambassadors actually listen to this podcast. So if you want to get in touch, you our email will be at the end of this podcast. Any feedback, always welcome. Jacopo, you'll be back at the end of our episode to decode some Brussels jargon. So do stick around for that. Coming up next, is Crimea the key to how the war in Ukraine will come to an end? Our conversation with General Ben Hodges is coming up right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This week in Brussels, a plan was unveiled to ramp up the production of ammunition in Europe, a first for the EU. I am confident that we will be able to upscale our production capacity in Europe within the next 12 months to uh, produce at least 1 million of this ammunition per year. This is Single Market Commissioner Thierry Breton on Wednesday. The security paradigm and architecture of the Union have, uh, of course, we should say, drastically, dramatically changed uh, since the Russian war of Ukraine. And we need to take this in consideration. It is a fact. And, of course, this is um, when we say that we cannot be naive. This is not a fact. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we do whatever uh, we can to continue to protect also together together our uh, fellow citizens and then adapt ourselves to these new geopolitical uh, realities. It's exactly what we are doing today. The plan will help EU countries and industry build up their defence capabilities, support weapons manufacturing on the continent and, of course, help to meet Ukraine's longer-term defence needs. But how long will that take? We wanted to bring you an expert analysis on the situation from a military veteran who knows Europe inside and out. Our senior policy reporter, Josh Posaner, caught up with US Army General Ben Hodges during a recent trip to Berlin. I'll hand it over to you, Josh. Thanks, Suzanne. So I recently sat down with the former commander of the US Army in Europe, a guy called Ben Hodges. He finished his nearly four-decade-long career in the US Army as the highest-ranking commanding general in Europe back in 2018. He served in Iraq, he served in Afghanistan, and he knows Europe and the military capabilities across the continent like the back of his hand. So, we wanted to get his expert analysis of Russia's war on Ukraine, about when it will possibly end and how it will possibly end. So Ukraine's going to win. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And they win, as Ukraine defines it, recovery of all their sovereign territory, which of course includes Crimea. Now, when that happens depends on us. Can I pull out a map? Please, yeah. I mean, our listeners won't be able to hear it, but we can explain it to them. Yeah. So we're looking now at a beautiful paper map of Ukraine. And the uh, Ukrainian general staff does a very good job protecting information. Yeah. I mean, they, we know more about the Russians than we do about what the Ukrainians are doing and, and what they have. But the key, the decisive terrain for this whole war is Crimea. I mean, the Russians don't care about eastern Donbass. What they care about is Crimea and the ability to get to it. So this land bridge that runs from Rostov through uh, Mariupol, Melitopol, and then down into the peninsula. That's the land bridge. And that was the original target for the Russians to effectively claim. Yeah, because to make sure that they could 
hang on to Crimea because Crimea is the launching pad for everything bad the Russians have done in the Black Sea region, how they support Syria. And of course, Crimea is this platform, unsinkable aircraft carrier, from which they can touch almost every inch of the Black Sea with anti-ship, air missile defense, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the Navy base at Sevastopol is the home of the Black Sea Fleet. So for Russia, you know, that's the reason they were willing to do what they did to get Crimea. Now, I think that the Ukrainian general staff recognizes that they will never be safe or secure as long as Russia occupies Crimea. And they also know that their economy will never recover as long as Russia occupies Crimea. Mariupol and Berdansk were the two biggest ports on Sea of Azov, okay? Even if they were liberated, Russia still, because of the Kerch Strait and that bridge they built there, still can block anything that comes in and out of there. And then on the other side, on the Black Sea coast, with Odessa and Mykolaiv, those are the other two main ports for Ukraine, whose economy depends on the ability to export grain and grain products, as well as rare earth materials. So if they can't export then their economy is never going to recover. So, so there is, because there is much debate about whether or not an eventual peace treaty will center around some kind of deal around Crimea. But what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that there is no end to this conflict unless Ukraine takes Crimea. And that is inevitable at some point. Yes. Ukraine cannot recover as long as Russia occupies Crimea. At the Munich Security Conference, I had the chance to speak to a let's just say, a very, very, very senior executive from one of the world's biggest investment firms. And he said, there will not be any serious outside investment in Ukraine unless Ukraine has a ironclad security guarantee. And that means nobody's going to invest if they know that Russia sits on Crimea. So that's why the Ukrainians have got to get Crimea back. I think that you could kill every... Russian soldier within 200 kilometers of Bakhmut, and that would not change the strategic situation. You liberate Crimea, that changes everything. How militarily does that work? So, of course, people that are familiar with it, the geography, know that Crimea is attached to Ukraine over a very narrow isthmus called Perikop. And then, of course, the other is the Kerch Bridge. So there's really only two land routes that connect Crimea to Russia or to Ukraine. So in order to liberate Crimea, I think you do it in two or three different sort of phases. The first phase is to isolate it, to separate it from Russia. It will be very difficult to sustain uh, Russian forces in Crimea doing it just with ships by trying to move them across. I mean, it'll be very difficult to be very vulnerable. That's not going to work not over the long term. So Ukrainians know if they can isolate Crimea by severing the land bridge, then they will have already set things in train that would enable the eventual liberation. I think they will leave the Kerch Bridge up for an extended period of time because they want to give the Russians a bridge to, literally a bridge to get out. So it's it's not a failure to be able to demolish it so far. It's actually maybe a strategic choice to keep it standing. That's what I think. I think they will drop it when it's time. Unless the Russians start pouring in all kinds of stuff, then, of course, that that would change it. But if, if the Russians realize, you know, 
why would they put more and more in here if they've already been if this has already been severed and then this is going to get dropped then that's what they potentially lose it mm. i mean crimea in a way is like a trap or maybe a cul-de-sac you know there's nowhere to hide here every taxi driver in kiev <laughs> knows where the different bases are in crimea you can't hide you can see them from the beach yeah of course <laughs> that that's exactly right so um, what I think is going to happen, this isolation begins with the uh, counteroffensive that I believe happens in June when all the conditions are set. So that's his view on how militarily Ukraine can make headway against Russia. But the clock is ticking and the Western supply of weapons to Ukraine has been a hot political topic, pitting countries like Germany and France and the UK against each other as they decide how far to go in following the US government's lead in providing Kiev with the necessary arms to beat back Russian forces. Even if promises and pledges have been made, they haven't yet all come through on the front line. So I asked General Hodges what sort of timeline he predicts, given the current circumstances. If we decided we want Ukraine to win, and if we provided the long-range precision strike capability they need, the Crimea could be liberated by the end of August. Just the summer? Yes, the end of the summer. It, it could be done. And then when I talk about these phases, you know, the isolation and then make it untenable, hit these specific targets, you got to get close enough to do it. Right now, the closest that they can get is, or the longest that they can shoot is 90 kilometers with the, the GMLRS rocket launched off of the HIMARS. If they had the ATACMS with the 300 kilometer, or if they had the uh, ground launch small diameter bomb, that's 150 kilometers. Or a Gray Eagle drone that can launch Hellfire, you know, that's got 25 hour loiter time. Politically, who gives these this weaponry? Well, this would the, the president would have to. So this is all from the U.S. actually, France, Germany, uh, Italy, the U.K. No, I would say I was about to say that the U.K. also has something called Storm Shadow, which is uh, in the same sort of category of precision and range, and I think those are coming. But I, I try to stay away from specific platforms and talk about capability. The capability to hit these kinds of targets at distance, to deny Crimea as sanctuary, because right now Crimea is in effect sanctuary for Russian forces. Now, you know, the administration said, oh, we don't want to give them the, the capability to hit targets inside Russia. Okay, I, I disagree with that, but I accept that. Crimea is not Russia. But yet we have not given them the capability to hit Crimea. So Crimea is, in effect, sanctuary. That's what's required. So isolate, make it untenable, which I think could be done, that all those Russian forces here will have left or certainly be ineffective by the end of August. Now, it's another story. How do you get in there and physically liberate it? Okay. I think the Ukrainian general staff has already thought through how they would do it from land, uh, from water, different means. But once, once the fleet's gone, I don't see the Russians spending thousands more lives trying to hang on to this peninsula. I mean, so much of war is in the mind. Uh, Napoleon said that the moral is to the physical as three is to one. So... This gets penetrated. This gets made untenable. And you're pointing then to the land bridge and then, then the Russian occupation of Crimea right. with large-scale military and, forces. And I think the whole thing collapses. 
The war in Ukraine has also shone a spotlight on the military capabilities, or lack thereof, of European countries. Some of these countries are also looking for ways to send weapons and armaments to Ukraine, but they are also having to reimagine their own infrastructure to do so. That's what we call military mobility. That's ways to get tanks and troops across the block from west to east. Believe it or not, this is a very simple but tricky thing to do as it gets right to the heart of the EU's aging rail and road infrastructure. I was so naive when I first started at, at U.S. Army Europe about the mobility. I just assumed, you know, these were all EU countries, they're all NATO countries. This would be like going up and down I-95 in the U.S., you know, from Florida to Virginia. And, of course, it's not. Even inside Germany, where you've got different Bundesländer, they have a lot of authority for what moves through there. We still, still today are having challenges moving ammunition from our depot in Misal down to Zhezhov in Poland so that it can be handed over to the Ukrainians. You have to go through a lot of different layers of bureaucracy. It's not evil, but, I mean, we have still not solved the problem of how can NATO forces move quickly across Europe. And this is not for convenience of U.S. exercises. This is for our political leaders to have some options other than a liberation campaign into Lithuania, for example. And this, we're talking about the ability to move in peacetime before the crisis actually starts. When you want to be able to convey to the Kremlin, we see what you're doing. Don't make a terrible mistake. We can get there faster than you to wherever there, there is. So that this is a critical part of deterrence, just as important as how many tanks or artillery or aircraft you have, is the ability to actually move around Europe, and and it's a combination of capabilities, not enough of the uh, necessary type trucks that can carry heavy armored vehicles, and not enough capacity. The Deutsche Bahn, which uh, I love, but they only have the ability, the capacity to move one and a half armored brigades simultaneously. That's it. That's that's nothing. And Across so, the entire German network. That's, that's right. One and a half armored brigades. So Did anyone tell the Kremlin that? Well, I'm pretty sure they know. Mm-hmm. So this is a problem. And then there's the legal diplomatic clearance requirements. Beyond the legal and diplomatic hurdles, there are also major challenges with the basic transportation infrastructure throughout Europe. For example, trains are one of the primary ways to transport military hardware across the continent. But here, Hodges describes why even that is a difficult thing to do, especially in parts of Central and Eastern Europe. When you transition from Poland into uh, Lithuania, the former Soviet Union you're going from western rail gauge to the soviet gauge which means that you have to transload equipment tanks for example onto the a different set of rail capacity Um, so this rail baltica project was intended now this problem didn't start with the war in ukraine and here hodges talks about a project called rail baltica that was started decades ago with the intention of linking up the three baltic countries Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, with the European Continental Rail Network in Poland. 
The idea was to exactly address the problem of security by integrating these countries into a European network that would allow, in addition to tourists, arms, troops to be transported to the Baltics, if needed. But over a decade later, it's still not finished. So, as always, it's going to take a uh, political will and the ability to explain why this is important, that all of us will benefit from this. This is not just to make it easier to do exercises. Since retiring from the US military, Hodges has stayed active, serving as NATO senior mentor for logistics. He works with Slovakian security think tank Globesec, and also as a senior advisor to an American NGO called Human Rights First. It's in that capacity that Hodges is also working to make sure justice is served to the Russians responsible for this war and to hold them to account one day. This accountability is an important part of this. I think even though the Russians are like, Putin, you know, you have no jurisdiction. The fact that he's been indicted uh, as has his uh, the Minister for Children's Rights, I think they people realize that they are going to be held accountable and so one day eventually that's right and people around him like i mean they should know that they will be held accountable thanks josh for bringing us that conversation with ben hodges and now jacobo joins us again to decode our word of the week the word this week is co-repair co-repair jacobo explain it's an acronym and it's in French, it means the Committee de Représentants Permanent, which means the Committee of the Permanent Representatives. Then, what is the Corepair? The Corepair is where the EU ambassadors sit, and there are actually two Corepairs. And the Permanent Representative, or the EU ambassador, is the one that sits in the Corepair 2 that deals with the political files. Like foreign policy, for example. Like foreign policy, for example. As then there is uh, the Corepair 1 ambassador, who is also an ambassador, but is the deputy, is not at the same level of the Corepair 2 ambassador, who deals with the policy issues, like technology, agriculture. And, but as soon as a file becomes very political, it moves from the core repair that deals with policy to the core repair that deals with politics. Okay, so core repairs, we just, when we refer to it here in Brussels, we're talking about a meeting, effectively. You know, core repair meets a couple of times a week, and that is the 27 EU ambassadors who discuss an issue. For example, we mentioned about the defence proposals that emerged from the Commission this week. Co-repair will meet and discuss that at some point. So co-repair means the meeting, the structure in which the ambassadors meet. But we also use it, don't we, in shorthand to refer to the ambassadors themselves. We might say Mr. X is the co-repair one ambassador and, you know, that person from the Spanish Embassy is Co-Repair 2 Ambassador, etc. So we, we use it kind of interchangeably, isn't that right? Uh, Co-Repair is a council body and does a, a huge political importance. Outside Brussels uh, is not well known, but uh, for example, during the COVID pandemic, the only body that kept on meeting physically, regularly, was the Co-Repair. And the Corepair ambassador is very different from other ambassadors because he has a direct line with the prime minister. 
So usually the ambassadors deal with the foreign minister and only few on in the big capitals in Washington sometimes or in Beijing or in Moscow, they speak with the prime minister. As the Koreper ambassador speaks all the time with the prime minister's office. Again, because what he does has a huge impact internally. Okay, so a hugely important role here in Brussels. We don't hear that much about what they do publicly, but privately, you know, they're keeping the trains running on time. They're doing a lot of the legwork here in Brussels. Jacobo, thanks for that. Thank you. And that's all we've time for this week on EU Confidential. Be sure to follow or subscribe to us wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode. And if you have ideas for Brussels jargon you'd like us to decode or guests you'd like to hear from, please do email us at podcast at politico.eu. This week's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, with assistance from Zoe Bass. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.